Welcome to Lead Today with me, Kalina. Let's talk leadership. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Today, we're talking about The Undiscovered Self, The Dilemma of the Individual in Modern Society by Carl Jung. If you've been following along, we're in a bit of a series on this book. This is the episode on Chapter 5. I know it's been really heady stuff and sort of dense. I'm really working to make it understandable, although I'm working to understand it myself. So let's be real. These are sometimes seemingly complex subjects. That being said, I think the principles that are being explained are really simple, and that's what's great. If we can distill his words into the simple truths that he's aiming to convey, I think we'll be in good shape. So this chapter is about the philosophical and the psychological approach to life. His idea here is that ideas lag behind the changes to the total situation. And so only when conditions are altered drastically is there an unendurable rift between the outer situation and our ideas. So something needs to change substantially in our lives, in our outer situation of our lives for us to change our ideas, which makes sense, right? I mean, why would you change your core beliefs or your core ideas, if the outside world is reinforcing them, something big and drastic has to happen. Um, And so that being said, he says that our problem of the philosophy of life is how to change the primordial images that maintain the flow of instinctive energy. Okay. What does that mean? Well, in my interpretation, That means what we were talking about in the last chapter about there are these symbols, right? That kind of stand the test of time. Um, There are biblical and Christian symbols. There are literal letter symbols, like let's say hieroglyphs, right? But there are these primordial images that he is saying maintain the flow of instinctive energy. And we need to figure out how to reorient or readapt them to change them so that they maintain this flow because as humans, he says, we have this instinctive energy. And I think this is my opinion, but I think what he's talking about is also symbols that we get in our dreams, these sort of very instinctual tendencies that we have as human beings. And so he says, okay, we should reorient or readapt, but we can't replace them rationally because the academic and intellectual affair, again, right, being very head in your head, which is what we're sort of doing when we're analyzing his text in a way, which I just said, right, when we're really in our heads. Well, that's no longer a way of life, he says. The academic and intellectual component, even though they're increasingly rationalistic, we can't use this type of approach to change these images that maintain the flow of instinctive energy because they're molded by the outside situation, not by man's biological needs. And it builds a bridge to the original man. What's the original man? Again, it's that instinct, right? It's the human from an animalistic standpoint, from a, from a very 
I think raw standpoint, and we see this happens with humans when they really can't hold back. We get back into this kind of primal situation. One, one example I have in my mind is definitely when a woman is giving birth, right? There's no like, let me post for Instagram or let me look good or any kind of rational thought there. It's sort of like, let me make sure my baby gets out of me alive and that I'm okay. Like, it's just, it's very, very much so in the moment, there's no intellectualization of it, at least on the part of the the mother, you know, birthing the baby, the people around them might be rational, but that's a very instinctual act. I think similarly, we see it on the sexual side of things where people have these instinctual urges or instincts when it comes to their sexual lives, we have these biological needs to reproduce. And he's saying that, look, we cannot allow these to be molded by the outside situation, which is that rational scientific approach where you observe something that intellectual approach is not going to work, he's saying, to maintain this flow of instinctive energy. Why would we even want this? I mean, he hasn't necessarily stated why yet, so let's see. But my inkling is that, well, we have basic biological needs within us as human beings. We cannot deny them. I mean, we can, but at our own peril, right? And so these symbols, these images are the bridge to the original man. And he gives some examples of religious rites and conceptions being a way that humanity has preserved it. It's why a lot of us are drawn to religion or at least the metaphysical and trying to understand it, even for people that say, no, it doesn't exist. Somebody that's taken the time to say, no, it doesn't exist is still seeking, which is so interesting in my opinion. This is my opinion. Um, because you're you're still <laughs> fighting against something. So if it didn't exist, why would you be fighting against it in a sense, right? It's kind of like, oh, I don't believe in that. It's like, well, what is that exactly? If you don't know what it is, if it doesn't exist, then how can you fight against the fact that it exists, right? I mean, it's kind of funny because if if it's not a thing, but it's defined as something, uh, how can it not exist, at least in a conceptual way, right? And of course, his argument from our last discussion was that, well, but you can't just force somebody to believe. And that's why I think Buddhism is interesting because it doesn't say you must believe in God, right? There's nothing about belief. It's about experiencing God through silence and contemplation. And so, you know, all the religions have and get this right in the form of prayer, contemplation, meditation, it's an act of drawing closer to God, to this metaphysical, to something that is vast and unexplainable, that riddle that exists. And also, as we see the riddle of our mind, right? It's sort of this interesting parallel there. So, okay, there's this deep instinct that keeps us hanging on to prevent nihilism and despair. And so what is interesting is that people that don't believe in, in God or the metaphysical do sort of have little faith in, well, the betterment of, of the world or humanity. They, they often sort of say they see things as they are, quote unquote, right? Which would line up with his Jung's argument here about we have issues when we only look at the outer situation because then our ideas lag behind the changes to the total situation. They change if it has to change externally from the outside for you to change your ideas, for you to understand that something has shifted, right? Without any instinct, if you have to see, okay, the tidal wave has come and crashed and like completely ruined my house. It's like, okay, yeah, now you see it because it's happened, but that's problematic because maybe you could have anticipated it. 
right? Maybe you could have through this instinct or through ideas, if you had the instinct, maybe you could have anticipated. And that's what I think the metaphysical sometimes allows us to do is have this instinctive energy within us, tap into it more readily, and then sense things. Um, and some people are more connected to that than others. So, okay, religious symbols have life of their own as archetypal character and intellectual only needed when feeling and intuition do not suffice, which in Jung's argument is rarely. <laughs> so um, the the challenge is that these, these rights are unintelligible today, um, probably because we haven't, as he's saying, maintained and updated them, readapted, reoriented to understand them or to continue to understand them or to adapt them so that they make sense for the times. That's one of his main arguments here. Um, and he, he talks about this kind of gulf between knowledge and faith. And so, you know, faith is supported by, well, myth. Myth is a critical component of faith. And then, you know, sort of Jesus's story and these, these stories that we have. And I, I marked a page. So let's, let's read that together. Nothing is more characteristic and symptomatic in this respect than the gulf that is opened out between faith and knowledge. The contrast has become so enormous that one is obliged to speak of the incommensurability of these two categories and their way of looking at the world. Meaning, they so don't line up together that it's just, <laughs> it's it's difficult to look at them both when it comes to the way we look at the world because there's such a big contrast. And yet they're concerned with the same empirical world in which we live for even theology tells us that faith is supported by facts that became historically perceptible in this known world of ours, namely that Christ was born as a real human being, worked many miracles and suffered his fate, died under Pontius Pilate and rose up in the flesh after his death. Theology rejects any tendency to take the statements of its earliest records as written myths and accordingly to understand them symbolically. Indeed, it is the theologians themselves who have recently made the attempt no doubt as a concession to knowledge, to demythologize the object of their faith while drawing the line quite arbitrarily at the crucial points. This is the argument of many people that don't like the Bible or like conventional religions or creeds as we've come to define it in this series, right? Creed is the church and a set of beliefs from Jung's definition and religion is the individual's relationship to God, just as a refresher. So He's saying that theologians, which remember these are humans, right, who make mistakes, uh, and he's saying essentially there's this attempt to make the, the myths and the symbols and things that are meant to be faith-based and stories into knowledge, and there's this arbitrary line as to what is factual and what isn't, and he seems to think that that's problematic because, well, you can't say some of the Bible is factual and some of it isn't. <laughs> that's that's complicated, isn't it? It's either all fact or all fiction in a sense, right? I mean, I guess you could have stories within it that are stories, but then how do you draw that line? And so I think that's problematic for people when they say, okay, no, are we supposed to read the Bible literally or not? Um, 
I think his idea is that it's meant to be read from a faith-based mythological perspective and that facts create problem. Here he continues on, but to the critical intellect, it is only too obvious that myth is an integral component of all religions and therefore cannot be excluded from the assertions of faith without injuring them. The rupture between faith and knowledge is a symptom of the split consciousness, which is so characteristic of the mental disorder of our day. It is as if two different persons were making statements about the same thing, each from his own point of view, or as if one person in two different frames of mind were sketching a picture of his experience. If for a person we substitute modern society, it is evident that the latter is suffering from a mental dissociation, a neurotic disturbance. In view of this, it does not help matters at all if one party pulls obstinately to the right and the other to the left. This is what happens in every neurotic psyche to its own deep distress. And it is just this distress that brings the patient to the doctor. That sounds like a problem, doesn't it? The split consciousness idea and this mental dissociation and societal dissociation and this pulling away from faith and toward knowledge and you can't just give up anything without a cost, right? Everything has a cost. You can be okay with the cost. You can be willing to bear the cost, but everything has a cost. And so if you cut something off at your peril. And so here he starts talking about the doctor and how the doctor needs to establish a relationship with both halves of personality to put together the complete man and that society and state, these conventional ideas claim reality insofar as represented by a certain number of individuals. But again, remember, he doesn't like the group mentality because Jung is asserting that we need to analyze people at the level of the individual because that's where we have the greatest level of clarity, of granularity about making decisions, right? How could somebody that's never met me, doesn't know me, make decisions about my fate? It's complicated, right? That's much more difficult. It's it, They cannot take into account the vast amount of factors and physical characteristics, emotional, spiritual characteristics to understand me as my own individual entity. So this is problematic. And he says the achievement of the Christian epoch, supremacy of the word, the logos, central figure of Christian faith. Veneration of the word has a shadow side. When the word gets universal validity, severs link with divine person, belief in the word becomes credulity. So the word now is divisive distrust used to be unity of all men to God. Whoa. <laughs> right. So it's saying that the, the written word and speaking the word thought became a central figure of Christian faith, but that's problematic and has a shadow side, just like everything else, right? Everything has a cost because the word can sever the link with the divine person. When the word gets universal validity, when we decide that a word has universal meaning, it's problematic. So, well, now what? We see this happening today, don't we? We see this happening today with the changing definitions of different words, of what they mean, of how we interpret things. It used to be the unity of all men to God, that all men were under God. And so we were kind of equal in a sense, right? We were, we knew where we stood. But this, <laughs> I mean, this is that everybody distrusts and is divided based on the word, based on what's being spoken. We're not under one umbrella 
let's call it. So now he goes back to talk about the doctor and sees the patient objectively human and subhuman bound to body like an animal and that there's this unconscious instinct, sexuality and power or drive self-assertion. So when we talked about that, what symbols and that instinct can do, right? We talked about this flow of instinctive energy that the primordial images give us those very deep symbol symbols that we have, um, the unconscious instincts there are sexuality, as I already mentioned, and he talks about power drives so or self-assertion. So we're preserving the species with our sexuality by reproducing. And of course, with power and making sure we protect ourselves, there's self-preservation so that we don't get attacked and die. Right. And so he seems to think that the instinct, um, to dynamism and drive or drift has specific meaning and intention, and the chief object of moral judgment is numerous clashes and conflicts, which we do see, right? I mean, we see the clashes that are having, that are happening with sexuality and with self-assertion or power and allowing those to drive us. I certainly think that that's creating a bit of issues for some people around the world. If you start looking at how sexuality and self-assertion is creating some difficult situations for people human learning capacity the instinct undergoes modifications few basic ones in original recognized form so of course humans learn and that's why he's saying we need to adapt these these images right these kind of symbols that used to be in religious rites used to be understood because there are only few basic ones in their original recognized form and the instinct has undergone modifications over time, which, I mean, of course, just with the advent of technology, we our, our human instincts have changed substantially. So that makes complete sense. And here it says, learning capacity based on instinct for imitation and animals, birds change their song to adopt other melodies. And we see this with humans, right? I definitely see this with myself, depending on which client I'm speaking with or what person I'm speaking with. The tone of my voice changes to sound more like them. And sometimes it's like, what do I really sound like? Because we definitely have an instinct of imitation. And I see it in myself for sure. When I being in Texas or then going back to Canada, being in Switzerland, being in Brazil, it's almost, and I think depending on your personality traits, of course, your likeliness to do this changes. I'm extremely open. And so I'm taking on that environment around me at my, at a cost to myself as well. So, um, he continues on to say that learning is, you know, we have to look at learning because man's progressive alienation from instinctual foundation. There's a concern with consciousness at the expense of the unconscious. So we keep going toward knowledge, right? We keep going toward certainty, knowing, conscious knowing, um, and away from this unconscious faith and symbolism, mysticism, and therefore knowledge based on observing the world forgets the instincts of the real nature. The conscious activity replaces reality as well. So our thinking even replaces what's real. We, we're thinking so much today that it's almost not real <laughs> uh, we, because we are defining our perception is our reality, which it's not to say it wasn't before. It's saying that before we allowed ourselves to be guided by our instincts, whereas now we try to rationalize 
everything. We try to have an explanation and a proof or an argument. We need to have our points for why we do things. And he's just saying, look, knowledge based on observing the world, this rational knowledge is part of the equation, but we can't operate as a simplex instead of a, a duplex. We have both sides. We need to acknowledge both sides, the symbolic, the unconscious, the shadow. We need to acknowledge this because the conscious activity is even replacing the true reality. Separation from instinctual nature plunges civilized man into conflict, as I've just said. Conscious, unconscious, nature and spirit, knowledge versus faith. We need both sides. He's not saying that faith is the end-all be-all. He is saying we need both. He's not throwing one side out for the other, um, but he's saying we've gone kind of, you know, when the pendulum swings in society in different with different political issues or social issues, sort of this, he's saying, look, we've swung the pendulum over here on the side of knowledge and we're, we're really not respecting the deep instinctual foundation that we have as human beings when it comes to our unconscious minds, our spirits and our faith. And so existence of the dictator allows us to point the finger at him as the shadow. Also very interesting because now he goes into this idea that our shadow is grounded in instinctual nature. How does the inner man feel about the ways we operate in the outside world? How do you feel about the ways you operate in the outside world? Okay. It's, this is fascinating. If we can point the finger at a dictator and say, he's bad, he's the problem. We don't have to take any personal responsibility ourselves for our lives, for our situations. If we blame the economy and the government, the first thing I do in a coaching session, the very first thing, and people regularly come in blaming, oh, the job market, oh, the economy. It's like, I know people getting new jobs every day. I know people getting fired every day. I know people starting businesses every day. And I know people that are closing businesses. It's all up to your ability to pivot and change and adapt to your situation and when people come in and they want to point the finger at everybody else, they're not taking personal responsibility. And this comes from me knowing this myself, right? I'm not immune. I'm also a human. I'm not here telling you that I know better or that I don't do this. I'm identifying something for you, for you to take on for yourself and to improve your life, hopefully, <laughs> and to improve, improve the stories that you're telling yourself in your mind. When you find yourself blaming your outside situation, it's time to take a second and say, hang on, what, what is in my control? What can I do about this? What can I take responsibility for? This is in chapter one of my book, Memorable. It's on responsibility for this exact reason. I think the whole point of this book, one, is to sound the alarm and to share the importance of the individual, but two, it's kind of to plead the individual to take on individual responsibility for their circumstances because you know your life best. You know your kids, your spouse, you know your work, you know your neighborhood, your community, you know it best. Don't give the keys up to high, this higher state power keep the responsibility for you to whatever degree you can to whatever scope makes sense that's that's his argumentation here we can't point the finger at him at this dictator right when there's this existence of this evil other that's what we love to do in politics when there are these two sides and we love to see the other side as evil it's like why don't we look inward and see the fault within our own selves and our own party or our own way of being in our team or company like let's start with ourselves and go outward from there is his argument 
rather than the easy thing. The easy thing is to blame the government and these institutions, which don't get me wrong. They absolutely make decisions that change the way that you can deal in the world. No question. It's I'm not trying to deny the reality of what a, a dictatorship government does to people. There's no question in history. It does absolutely horrendous things under the guise of safety, protection, equality. It's a scary, scary thing if you stop to think about it. But let's keep going on the chapter. More power man has over nature, more knowledge, skill went to his head. So <laughs> have you ever been, have you ever had that feeling? The more you know, you just you get kind of cocky, right? You get conceited. And there's more contempt for the natural or accidental, and we lose our instincts. I mean, we see this, right? People want to plan every minute of their day. They want to have control over everything. I know this better than anybody. I love control <laughs> or perceived control. I love the feeling that things are working out on my timeline as I dictate when I say so. Feels good. It feels good. It's a human tendency, but we have then this contempt for the accidental, the this contempt for the natural, and we lose our instinct. And again, let's remember, we're not vilifying knowledge here. We're just saying we need both. We need masculine, feminine. We need yin, yang. We need the spiritual and natural. We need knowledge and faith. We need conscious and unconscious. We need this connection between the rational, the logos, the mind, and the unconscious, the spiritual, the faith-based, the unknown, the, the metaphysical, the what we cannot see outside of our external situations. And so the conscious is subjective. The unconscious is objective, which is contrary to feelings, fantasies, emotions, impulses, and dreams come upon one objectively. The second psychic authority beyond the ego are these fantasies, impulses, dreams, emotions. It's objective because you are not coming up with it, right? It's spontaneous. The seat of faith is spontaneous. Religious experiences are that. An individual's faith into immediate relationship with God is this seat of faith. Being in the secret of faith is in being in that immediate relationship. Have I any? Have I had any religious experience or immediate relationship to God? Have you? It's a great question. I think that for me, I witnessed this most, again, I mentioned this already in this episode, but I certainly witnessed this most with pregnant mothers. When they give birth, they say the veil is thin. That's probably the most profound religious experience I've been a witness to and, and experienced and seen in the world that's just undeniable. It is undeniable. The instinctual nature, the animal, just complete raw element in nature of childbirth. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. It is just the most sacred, miraculous, animalistic thing you could ever see, in my opinion, for a human. 
Um, I think what people often have are synchronicities or sort of situations that are unexplainable miracles of health where they feel like they've had a religious experience because their life has been spared. And so then they feel that they have faith. Um, I've had a similar experience there when I had my car accident, I felt really grateful that I survived with, you know, the limited injuries that I did have. I, it really changed the way that I see my life and the value of my life. I really took it for granted before that in all honesty. And sometimes I still do. That's, that's human nature. I kind of sometimes find myself complaining about things that are just so meaningless in the grand scheme. And so it's our work to check in and say, is this worth it? Is this worth it? Is this worth it (laughs) again and again and again? Um, so ask yourself, have you had any religious experience with an immediate relationship to God? Because if you have, there's a certainty in that, that'll keep you as an individual and not allow you to dissolve into the cloud as he says. So that's where, let me, I'll read you his, the way he said it, page eighty four eighty five. The religious person, so far as one can judge, stands directly under the influence of the reaction from the unconscious. As a rule, he calls this the operation of conscience. Conscious and conscience. (laughs) But since the same psychic background produces reactions other than moral ones, the believer is measuring his conscience by the traditional ethical standard and thus by a collective value in which endeavor he is assiduously supported by his church So long as the individual can hold fast to his traditional beliefs and the circumstances of his time do not demand stronger emphasis on individual autonomy, he can rest content with the situation. But the situation is radically altered when the worldly-minded man who's oriented to external factors and has lost his religious beliefs appears en masse, as is the case today. The believer is then forced into the defensive and must catechize himself on the foundation of his beliefs. He is no longer sustained by the tremendous suggestive power of the consensus omnium and is keenly aware of the weakening of the church and the precariousness of its dogmatic assumptions. To counter this, the church recommends more faith as if this gift of grace depended on man's goodwill and pleasure. The seat of faith, however, is not consciousness but spontaneous religious experience, which brings the individual's faith into immediate relation with God. So again, you have to have an experience. And we see this in Christianity. Sometimes I think there's this just believe what I say and don't question it thing going on. And that's not at all what's meant to be the case. You're meant to be in relationship with God, have that experience. And we see this with Buddhism where it's really highly recommended to not believe a single thing that's that's said but to experience it for yourself and i think that's absolutely right and i think if you if you read the bible correctly or interpret it for what it is meant to say it's giving you these myths and examples of ex- religious experience that you can transfer to your own life that you may have had for yourself and maybe you <laughs> Maybe you're not, um, you know, the the Red Sea has not been parted for you, but there are ways in which the Red Sea in your life has been parted. So it's, it's giving you these images, right? These big grandiose images and these primordial images that you can translate to your own life. And that's the whole idea is to 
bring it into your life so that you have this your own religious experience so that your faith is in relation immediately with God. It's there's not this like you the church and then God. There's no like middleman here. It's you and your relationship to the metaphysical to a force unseen to to God. And so he finishes the chapter the same way that I, you know, the question that I cropped up to you already, which is here we must ask, have I any religious experience and immediate relation to God? And hence that certainty, which will keep me as an individual from dissolving in the crowd. So, I mean, ask yourself, ask the women in your life who have given birth and see what they have to say about that experience. Ask people who have survived from a terrible, incurable disease that just have this new lease on life and say, it's bigger than me. It's way bigger than me, you know, and, and the, again, being mindful of when you just discount that bigger force, the nihilism that comes with it and what cost comes from saying that, not, that it doesn't exist. I mean, again, if it didn't exist, you wouldn't need to say it doesn't, there would be no definition for it if it wasn't a force, Right. And so the fact that some people perceive it and others don't, or that some have had an experience with it or others have not, I don't think that anyone has not had an experience. I think they label it differently. I think they might not be calling it the same thing. We have these different words for the same thing. But if you have had anything miraculous, anything serendipitous, anything that just feels instinctual and completely right, faded, divinely appointed this kind of just deep instinctual knowing then you have experienced this force and that's all that he's trying to say with this side is there's this unconscious faith-based spiritual force and we can't be so arrogant as to think that with knowledge with this logical rational conscious mind that we have completely lost our need for the natural, for nature, for, for the instinct. We need to have reverence for nature and the accidental and the unplanned, these unseen spiritual faith-based forces. We have to have faith in God, in the things unseen. While still pursuing the things seen, but, the, but there's a duality and we cannot operate as a simplex when really we're a duplex. <laughs> I thought that was a great way of putting it. So, Hey, I hope you're enjoying this series and I'd love to see you next time. If you would be willing to leave a review, that would mean a lot to me. If you can subscribe and share this with a friend, that would be a huge amount of help. Every single person that listens makes a difference to this show getting out there, shared with more people, hopefully supporting people to question and look into how they're thinking. So anything that you can do to engage with the show, sharing it with a friend, writing a review really means a lot and does make a difference to, to the effort I put in to produce this. So would really love it if you took the time to do that and look forward to seeing you next time. We'll be just about done with this book chapter six on self-knowledge. So I'll see you next time and take good care until then.